I came back to more grassroots organizing activism very much because I don't believe in the cliche that, you know, you have to put theory into practice and all that. Like, it's rather that they're inseparable. My theory is by going on the street. Like, mm. I get to actually make theory happen. You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a conversation with graduate students about their research journeys at the University of Victoria. Welcome to Beyond the Jargon. I'm your host today, Liz MacArthur, and joining me is Sasha Kowalczuk, who is here uh, as a master's student in political science. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. And we got a lot, of, lot to talk about today, but let's focus in a little bit on uh, what you're studying here at UVic right now, if you can give us sort of an idea of what that is. Yeah, so right now uh, I'm a Master of Arts candidate in political science, so mm -hmm. I'm in my second year, and my specialization is the international law regarding peacekeepers' legal immunities. Mm. Interesting. Peacekeepers' legal immunities. Can you expand on that a little bit? Oh, of course. Uh, so when peacekeepers are sent to other countries, uh, they are legally immune from prosecution from the country in which they're stationed. And they're also, uh, being part of an international organization, enjoy um, immunities uh, from international uh, um, prosecution. Uh, but also when the militaries that send them can prosecute them. However, the militaries tend not like, they don't like doing that. Mm. So there's a general culture of impunity when peacekeepers uh, in times of war, like their soldiers, nonetheless, they, they commit crimes. Hmm. Uh, interesting. So what kind of uh, information are you drawing from? Are you looking at specific examples of peacekeepers committing crimes? Uh, so that's, that was actually how I started my research. And as I was going delving into it, I, I explored different ways of how to deal with this with this problem because it raises a lot of theoretical questions, but also practical ones. And then in consultation with my committee, we have decided to uh, critique or look at the people trying to solve the problem. And mm -hmm. there you can kind of see all these structures of discourses, but also law. So you have advocate groups uh, such as the Code Blue campaign run by Stephen Lewis and Romeo Dallaire. They're really advocating for uh, the immunities to be limited to um, to exclude when there's sexual crimes against children. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have, a, like the UN is aware of this problem. It's an old problem of 20 years old. They have big reports uh, such as the Prince Zaid report um, and they regularly investigate it. So there's this group of scholarship and lawyers who try to work within the system. And then what I really like uh, explore is there's a third group of people who decide to try to sue the United Nations or the countries that send the peacekeepers and get around the legal immunity through what's called Use uh, Kogan's law, so international law that supersedes all other laws. So, and then I take that and try to explain all the different actors at play and how those approaches are imperfect, but this last one has a political possibility of going around or transcending this immunity. Hmm. Um, when you mentioned that the initial approach to the research posed specific problems, I mean, I can imagine what some of those problems are, but can you uh, give me an example of the sort of uh, challenges you would face if you took that route? One thing was uh, it was really hard to pick what interest 
I wanted to concentrate on.、Mm-hmm. And there's this whole other way of reading international politics through kind of a political theoretical lens and talking about ontology in you know bringing up art theory and performance of theater and really drawing,、uh, really making kind of a, a more metaphorical work. And I, I kind of had to. Kind of had to、uh, put that aside because uh, uh, I would have had to learn so much new theory、mm. uh, that I went with something that I was more comfortable with, which is critique of policy. And I drew on what I did in my undergrad, my training from my undergrad, to continue doing the work moving forward.、Uh, another thing was I learned a lot in my courses. So things that I, you know. Having written a paper and presenting it at conferences, it came apparent to me that there were some major problematic elements of my research, such as I was fixated on the sexual assault part of the、uh, of the problem, and that has gained a lot of traction in the media. But that I that is exploitative of people's crimes, and I could I don't need to talk about that specific type of crime、mm-hmm. in order to get to get attention, especially. You know, as a as a white male sitting in my ivory tower, looking down upon this situation, there were other ways I could use my position and critique、uh, the laws of international of of peacekeeping immunities. Interesting. That's an interesting perspective to hear as well when you're talking about using your position to,、um, I guess, to critique.、Um, was that a long sort of process to come to that、uh, realization and sort of change your focus as a result? It was a long process in the sense of uh, it. Uh, the paper changed every time I got crit- critiques, and that was a reoccurring criticism.、Mm. So it 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 it's very much on on one side. Not wanting to be defensive, but there's that natural inclination of thinking, "But I'm doing good work, you know.、Uh, I'm critiquing the bad guys, or however I would like to frame it."、Uh, so it was, it was rather not necessarily long, like per time, but it was long to to come to peace with, like, okay, I need to do a major change.、Mm-hmm. Uh, A major change to my work.、Mm-hmm. So you shifted the focus then, not not exclusively to this sort of sexual crimes, but、um, does that mean you broadened it out to encompass other types of crimes? If so, like what what are you talking about? So I, I really like this question because it's one probably the most frustrating experience, but it's one that I've had to go through undergrad before is narrowing down the idea, just <laughs> making it manageable.、Mm-hmm. And so I decided not to encompass other crimes. I decided to concentrate on. People trying to change the immunities, right? Okay, and really looking at how do people argue or interact in international politics to change the immunities, and from there I'm able to extrapolate structural things that are happening in international politics, such as international society,、um, that this there are deals between countries that、um, uh, that are negligent towards the people. When they send peacekeepers there,、um, and that there's little international legal mechanisms to holding two states t-、uh, to account when they contract a deal implicitly to send peacekeepers for whatever interest.、Mm-hmm. And what was so interesting about human rights and、um, uh, groups who represent those who have been harmed 
by suing those states is a way of saying, okay, we don't really need to change the system, but we're going to try to bring accountability, uh, accountability to this other realm. And I use that to say, look, there's this other aspect of peacekeeper crimes. And this is another thing that I had to really change my research was I, I don't want to be dismissive of soldiers who have been sent there and put their lives on the line to do maybe uh, the bidding of a corrupt international system. And on top of it, there's a political economy behind peacekeeping where rich states, scared of scandal, contracted out to um, underdeveloped states such as Nepal and uh, Bangladesh who provide lots of peacekeepers. Mm. And this is a way they, they, they hide behind that veil and they have, in essence, which is a, a form of mercenary armies. Mm. And I don't want to... That's why I, I really concentrate on on uh, international society and its role in peacekeeping because laying all the blame on one individual or one country misses the entire point that it's a the immunity is express, expressing a structural flaw behind peacekeeping. Hmm. Can you give an example of, you know, you talked about merc- sorry, mercenary armies or peacekeepers being hired from, you know, like a, a Bangladesh providing that or Nepal. Can you give an example of, you know, when something like that has happened for people to sort of connect to this? Oh, so the peacekeeping, peacekeeping is a uh, office or bureau in the United Nations, mm-hmm. and they rely completely on voluntary contributions of states. So it's not like every person in the United Nations gives a tax and then they raise an army. For every mission, they need to have one state agree, okay, I'm going to send this many troops, and then I'm going to send, uh, it's going to be paid by this way, and the the ships will be by this person. And, and every peacekeeping mission is case-by-case basis. There's no regular. So every peacekeeping mission is such a, is such a scenario. Uh, and there's just been a shift. Uh, I guess the exception is Afghanistan, but there's been a shift that most developing states don't send their troops directly in in harm's way. And but the way Western countries do contribute is they usually foot the bill, uh. and they usually send officials. Now, every time the peacekeeping mission happens, there are two major documents. There's a memorandum of, of understanding and a status of forces agreement. Those two legal documents sets out who's responsible for when something bad happens. Uh, what are, um, what is the insurance policy? Uh, uh, what are the ways to, to complain? What are the explicit immunities? And that's where, that's where the immunities usually are spelt out. Uh, as far as your research has gone so far, how long have you been working on this right this project now? Well, uh, I guess. It would have to be uh, technically like a year and a half, but it's mm-hmm. kind of hard to say. Um, all throughout my coursework, I always made my course uh, my coursework, so the papers I wrote for courses about peacekeeping, mm-hmm. about different facets. And so the thesis was essentially it started off from one paper evolving into a thesis. However, this past term has been, I don't want to call it a write-off, but I've I've been... I've had other responsibilities, so mm-hmm. it's a bit, a bit, bit, a bit. It has been a bit more intermittent mm-hmm. the way uh, how how much I've written, but you could say it's it's approaching two years, so a year and a half. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So you've been uh, focusing on this for a long time. Why? What initially drew you to this? 
So I actually, I applied to University of Victoria with a completely different idea. Mm. And it was an idea that really, really confused me. There's a phenomena uh, out there called unrecognized states. So a state that's not legally a country. Mm-hmm. But it looks like a country, it acts like a country, but in the law, in the eyes of the law, it, is, it isn't one. And there's a slew of these examples. And... Uh, some, and they've been around for many years. So there's Transnistria in Mold- Moldova. There's Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan. One that is going might be a future contender is that uh, Donetsk People's Republic could become one of these uh, unrecognized states. Uh, for a long time, Taiwan is an interesting example. Technically, it's not a country. Hmm. Uh, Kosovo... looks like it's maybe actually gone past that point, but it's a form of unrecognized state. And when I came to the uh, department and I met with my supervisor, uh, peacekeeping was a sub-example of a phenomenon I was trying to write about. And uh, my supervisor advised me that it'd be more interesting and would draw more, there'd be more uh, materials to examine if I actually talked about peacekeeping. And I had I was just not opposed to that. It was a fascinating aspect of it. I knew about the peacekeeping immunities. I knew about that there's this l- weird space in politics, uh, uh, international politics, where anything goes, where you have a radical opening of pure violence that is completely unaccountable. And, you know, an unrecognized state, you can bomb it, you can invade it, and there's nothing really wrong with that because you're not really invading anything. Uh, mm. Like Palestine is a good example, right? Like this is not seen as a state. Uh, and that I used peacekeeping in that original idea as, look, there's another space where there's pure unaccountable violence. Through peacekeeping. Through peacekeeping. But this, these areas, these spaces in international politics where mm. anything goes, and another word for it is war. War that isn't called war. Because these people are called peacekeepers and there is this lack of accountability for it. Exactly. And mm. war can also only happen between two states. So when you kill a rebel group within your own country, that's called a civil war. That's a different war, uh, but not necessarily the same status as when two, two, states, mm. two states fight. So as far as uh, what your research has been so far, what you've been gathering and looking at, you're critiquing the people who are trying to fix these holes in accountability is that it or provide solutions to it yeah, yeah. Uh, another way of saying problem solving theories yeah okay uh, band-aids and no cures <laughs> interesting so is that sort of symptomatic of the way that the i guess the system is that there can only be band-aids and no cures or are there people that are looking for a cure for it as well um i guess this is always a problem that uh critics uh come into contact with is is are we are we all fatalists? Is mm. is this a doomed condition? And 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 I've been told by some professors that at the end of the day, uh, by Cindy Holder, Professor Cindy Holder, who who is a professor of philosophy philosophy here, at the end of the day, you have to be an optimist or pessimist, to mm. some extent. And I would say no, it's not. I, I guess I'm an optimist on that. Like push comes to shove. No, the, we can't just like be resigned to it. Mm. Um, the people who are trying to fight it. Um, I, I think that, you know, the Code Blue campaign with Lewis and Dallaire, uh, the, the good intentions and all that, 
uh, I guess what I'm arguing is that there is a there's a silence over that cause, and that that cause is kind of in front of us or under our noses, and that we're not really talking about the legitimacy of of sovereign sovereign power, the power of states to do violence. Um, and I think that what really drew me to to my like current the current iteration of my idea is that there you can use civil law you can now civil law so the idea of suing somebody it can be uh, merged with humanitarian law so the idea of war crimes or human rights abuses and then together you can actually challenge nation states on a completely different level mm. and so that's where i see the radical possibility where you know uh, very often uh, you know a, a protest can be a protest can be ignored, but like when money comes into the factor, right? You mm -hmm. know, things change. I, I'm very, let's say, encouraged by the uh, BDS, the boycott, divestment, and sanction movements. There's one against fossil fuels, but also notably against the Israeli state. Mm -hmm. And Israel has taken notice. Israel has its own PR campaigns, and it's been shown that they're putting pressure on those groups and getting their friends in invite in other countries to put pressure on these groups. And for me, that's a promising sign hmm. that they're being heard. And, hmm. and, and yeah, there's plenty of examples of that politics being, being effective. So you would see that this uh, sort of combination of humanitarian law and civil law and bringing lawsuits against uh, these states, I'm guessing, uh, is like a positive way to deal with or maybe try to rectify these um, the peacekeeping crimes? I think so. Yeah. I, I think that it it will make leaders who decide to write the contracts and plan it think twice. And the specific law or technique of law is called tort. So you don't have to even be directly connected to the event. It's not like, let's say, imagine, you know, the uh, uh, United States or Canada is funding the peacekeeping mission they're not directly involved with the crime that's happening on the ground. But why would you sue the poor country who sent the soldier or the general or whatnot? You can sue by association um, the people who made it possible. And mm -hmm. so tort law allows um, individuals and so it, uh, individuals to sue people uh, not because there's a contract relation, but because there was an, a lack of care or negligence elsewhere that made that crime possible. And I think that people will think twice before sending either a poorly trained peacekeeping mission um, or um, they don't take the proper preparations for the health and safety of people. And also just peacekeeping in general, people forget that it's war. At the end of the day, it's sending soldiers in mm -hmm. uh, into a war place uh, and trying to rectify rectify a political problem through force. And, you know, because crimes will almost almost inevitably happen, mm -hmm. um, suing the idea that there could be a monetary loss for states and individuals involved in that process maybe will make them think twice. Hmm. 
Um, I'm going to shift the, the focus for a little bit here and talk a little bit about the fact that you're not just working on your grad thesis, but you're also act, active in other things in uh, the city and around town. Can you talk a little bit about um, what kind of activism you're interested in doing? And yeah. I mean, I guess uh, it, it's a tricky, tricky question only because uh, I, I've kind of dabbled in a few things. And unfortunately, sometimes it feels reactionary. Uh, such mm -hmm. as like when Bill 51 was uh, put into, was passed by Parliament, uh, but when it was put on the floor, the House, um, sorry, on the floor of the House, House of Commons, um, that elicited a reaction. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, then... Can you uh, tell us a bit about the bill, refresh our memories? <laughs> oh, yes, Bill 51. So, so the... Um, I've, I describe it as a secret police bill. Hmm. It is a bill that allows various security agencies to uh, have unfettered access to your information, share it between agencies, share it with foreign governments. There's also amendments that they can completely wipe your bank accounts. And there's a new category of um, enforcement, which is called disruption warrants, so they can intimidate activists, they can... Uh, destroy their property and then there's secret no-fly lists so there are cases where you go to the airport and you're not allowed on because you're on this list and you never knew and there's no registry of these lists and to get off the list you need to petition the minister and if they don't read it in time it just gets indefinitely extended and there are some serious ramifications um, for your for everyone's travel which is a constitutional right, a uh, protest. There's a chilling effect. This is necessary for any democratic society. And uh, lastly, like for your privacy. And, you know, there's a seven-year-old was on one of these no-fly lists. Right. Yeah. Sharing information with the CIA has gotten some Canadian citizens tortured before. Mm. Um, and protests recently, our, our security services don't have a lot of oversight. And recently it's been shown that you know, 800 peaceful protests were watched by the government. And I don't know why we would give the security apparatus even more more power. Mm -hmm. So that, 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 when that bill came on the floor, when it was proposed, it was, it was impossible not to act. Mm -hmm. So that's something that you were involved in as well. Mm -hmm. um, again, you know, uh, things that are linked to a, a deep understanding of like how, how political systems and stuff work. So it seems to me that, you know, what you're passionate about in school does seem to spill over into things that you're passionate about, you know, when you're not at school. Is that right? Well, it's a, it's, it's a tricky thing in the sense of, um, I, I, I guess I don't disagree, but I feel like the order, it's the other way around. Right, it was okay. actually, you know, I, I grew up very privileged. Um, my mother at the age of 12 brought me to a G20 protest. I was... In Toronto, it was one of the first G20s after the Battle of Seattle. And that really showed, that was a great experience just to show me the political possibilities of people uniting. So mm -hmm. this interest has nudged me into politics. And it's taken a, a lot of forms. At one time, I worked for the government. I worked at National Defense and an embassy. Mm -hmm. And then kind of turned off on that. And then, you know, I just stuck with my theory. And then... I came back to more grassroots, grassroots organizing activism, uh, very much because I don't, I don't believe in the cliche that you know, you know, 
you have to put theory into practice and all that. Like this, it's rather that um, that they're inseparable. That my theory is by going on the street. Like mm. I get to actually make theory happen. Uh, you know, solidarity. People may call that abstract. Equality. People might call that abstract. But then I can just go to a, a rally and prove them wrong because, well, look, here, here it exists. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, that idea of yeah theory and practice sort of interlinked like that. Huh. Where, uh, where do you see yourself going after you finished your, uh, your master's? Um, well, knock on wood. Oh, that's <laughs> not real wood. There we go. Knock, knock on wood. I, let's, let's hope I, uh, I, I do finish it. Uh, I've I very much decided that I never really want to work. I want to stay in the... <laughs> I want to stay in academia. Uh, mm. I'm. Uh, it is a amazing environment. It mm. is a place where there are young people with great ideas, and it is um, a protected space for free speech and the investigation uh, of those ideas. Uh, there are so many groups of of other community organizers, but also uh, students and professors. It is very, I guess, utopic for someone who, who can't see them, who doesn't really identify with a lot of like other work. So, I hope if I have the privilege to continue on to my PhD, mm-hmm. and and then from there I go into that job market. Uh, hopefully, maybe I guess this is all conjecture, but mm-hmm. maybe postdoc. I don't know, sessional. It's a it's, it's a very intimidating question because the field. And university funding is only going down, mm-hmm. and there are more and more PhD applicants. But ultimately, that's a good thing. I mean, I wouldn't argue against a better educated society. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. I I always like hearing the responses from different people on this show because some people, you know, the academy isn't for them, and they learn that through their studies, and then they're, you know, they they find that out about themselves, and they're just like ready to go. But other people, and I. I think that this is a little more rare have um, your reaction, which is this is the place for me and I've really found the right fit for me, which is it's just really interesting. And it's good to see that, too. And I feel on top of that, there are the masters gave me access to something that I uh, parts of the university I never saw before. Hmm. So being uh, spoken to as a peer and being more involved in the university has given me access to how it's how it's governed. Uh, so. This, there's this other aspect of uh, the undergrad, sorry, the master's was a place where I could live out all the dreams I couldn't do in my undergrad. So mm. that's how I got into student politics and, mm. you know, being part of uh, university governments, uh, Senate committees and hiring committees and all that, you can see that there's actually a lot of politics happening here. Mm-hmm. And it's the politics that's going to determine the future for so many people and also Canada and other nations at large, such as right now the university is grappling with how to implement the recommendations to the Truth and Reconciliation mm. uh, uh, Truth and Reconciliation Committee report. And uh, there are questions about what to do around sexual assault on campus. And so there is a lot of actually politics happening here um, as well. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, let me check the time. We're, we're pretty much out of time. I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. It was a great conversation. And good luck with your studies. And I'm glad that you, it seems like you're a fish in water here. Oh, well, thank you very much. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to Beyond the Jargon. If you're interested in being interviewed, please email cfuvcad at uvic.ca. To listen again, you can find a link to the podcast at cfuv.ca.